0: Following is a panel discussion of RTS faculty members entitled Reformed or Missional, Reformed and Missional. This discussion was one of the lunch forums at the General Assembly of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church meeting at First Presbyterian Church in Orlando on June 26, 2015. The moderator is Jay Legan Duncan, Chancellor of RTS and Professor of Systematic and Historical Theology. Panel members all of whom are EPC ministers are Don Sweeting, President of RTS Orlando and Professor of Church History, Scott Redd, President of RTS Washington, D.C., and Associate Professor of Old Testament, Mike Allen, Associate Professor of Systematic and Historical Theology and Dean of Students at RTS Orlando, and Mike Glodo, Associate Professor of Biblical Studies in Orlando. RTS courses, chapel messages, and conference recordings can be downloaded for free at RTS on iTunes U. If you would like to know more about RTS, visit our website at www.rts.edu.
1: They call us to order this afternoon. We want to get you out at 1.15 promptly so that you can be back for the beginning of the session at 1.30. And uh, so we'll go ahead and begin. The lines are long outside. You've got a little bit of a late start. uh, But to respect the time of those of you who have arrived... Promptly, we want to begin. My name is Ligon Duncan. It's my privilege to serve as the Chancellor of Reformed Theological Seminary. Uh, I teach in Jackson and in Orlando, yearly, and we are delighted to have you here at this RTS panel in which we will discuss the question of how you can be reformed and missional and try and define for you what we mean by missional but I want to begin uh, in prayer. So let's pray together, and then we'll uh, introduce our panelists. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, and we pray that you would bless the deliberations of the General Assembly, and that you would prosper the ministry of the churches, and that you would encourage all of the commissioners who have come to do the work of the church, that they would seek to magnify the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in accordance with Scripture in all that they do. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that they will go back to their homes and churches from the work of the assembly this week, encouraged and energized to serve you in a culture that desperately needs a faithful, bold, clear, loving witness to Jesus Christ in the gospel. And we pray that what we do here over the next few minutes might be a part of the encouragement that they receive here at the General Assembly. Thank you for the hospitality, uh, O God, that we have received from this local congregation of First Presbyterian Church in Orlando. Bless all of their volunteers who have given so selflessly of themselves in order to serve us and receive our thanks for the food and for this fellowship, all in Jesus' name, Amen. amen. I do want to say that spread throughout the room on the chairs is a gift to you from Dr. Sam Logan, who is here uh, representing the World Reformed Fellowship. Uh, The World Reformed Fellowship and Dr. Rick Canada, who is also an RTS uh, person, uh, is on the World Reformed Fellowship board. And the World Reform Fellowship produced a volume called Reformed Means Missional. And uh, Dr. Logan wanted to make it available to you for free today. So if you are not sitting in a seat where there is a chair, uh, you may want to avail yourself of, uh, or in a seat where there is a book, you may want to avail yourself of that book. Pick it up. That's a gift to you from Dr. Logan and the World Reform Fellowship. And I think Sam, you also have a card in the views. You want to tell folks about that? gave
2: you a 40% discount. <coughs>
1: Terrific. Okay. So if you run out we run out of books, please take all the books. Uh, and if we run out, you can get a copy at a 40% discount. And Elias Medeiros, who is one of the contributors to this volume, is a professor of missions at Reformed Theological Seminary, a member of the Presbyterian Church of Brazil, and our last General Assembly of the World Reformed Fellowship was hosted by uh, the folks of McKinsey University and the Presbyterian Church of Brazil in Sao Paulo. Uh, But this is the RTS uh, panel on uh, reformed or missional, question mark, or reformed and missional, question mark. We'll address the issue of being reformed and missional. Now, uh, it's very appropriate that we would be talking about this today because as all of you perhaps now know, this morning the United States Supreme Court released a 5-4 decision saying that there is a constitutionally grounded right uh, based upon their interpretation of the 14th Amendment uh, which mandates that there can be no state laws against same-sex marriage. And uh, that means that we are in a new era constitutionally as Christians in the United States. And it's actually quite timely that we would be talking about the issue of being missional. Now the word missional is subject to significant elasticity. Uh, It has been used really in our vocabulary in Reformed and evangelical circles for less than 20 years. And you will see it defined variously Todd Billings of Western Seminary uh, wrote a good, helpful article in 2008 in Christianity Today in which he addresses the various definitions of what missional means. But let me, if I could, start our conversation by indicating three aspects of what it means to be missional. And those aspects are this. One is to consider the context in which you are living and serving as Christians and in the local church. Two, uh, has to do with whose mission the mission is. And three, has to do with the integration of that mission in the life of the church. So if I could just mention three things. To be missional, first of all, is to recognize that, and it's so important for us to recognize this right now in our own context, that we're missionaries in our own culture. This culture is not us and we are not this culture. We we actually need to think like missionaries in what we used to think of as our own culture. So being a missionary is not simply going to another place, another land, another culture and bearing witness to Christ. It's recognizing that right now in our own culture we are speaking as outsiders. We are now Part of the subculture. We are now a part of a counterculture. Uh, we're not part of the mainstream culture. To believe in uh, biblical marriage as between one man and one woman uh, for life uh, will have the same moral status of being a white supremacist in our culture going forward. So all you have to do to be viewed uh, in that sort of light is to believe that the biblical definition of marriage that goes all the way back to Genesis 2 is true. And suddenly you're on the outside looking in in our culture. So to be missional is actually uh, to recognize in our posture, thinking, behavior, and practice that we are missionaries to our culture in order to engage us with the gospel message. Secondly, to be missional is to recognize the mission is God's. It's, it's, not, it's not ours. It's God's mission, and we're joining in on God's mission. God is the great missionary. Uh, the, the Father sent the Son, and the Son has sent his church, and he has sent the Spirit to empower the church in their sending. And so when we are missionary, we're simply copying God. Because God is the original missionary and the mission is his. But third, uh, to be missional is to recognize that the mission is integrated into everything that we do. Missions isn't something that we sort of glop on at the end. It's not just one of several different activities that the church does. It's integrated into everything that we do and are. And so those are three things that we mean by the term missional. Now the panel will have an opportunity to elaborate on that, no doubt, as they answer some of the questions. But let me, there's, there's a bio, I think, for you. Did we hand out a sheet on this at the door? We didn't hand out a bio sheet. Well, So you didn't get a bio. So let me introduce these folks first. Dr. Michael Allen uh, is an EPC teaching elder and he is Professor of Systematic Theology at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando. And I want to remind you that, the, that RTS has a long and happy connection with the EPC. RTS has more EPC faculty members than any other seminary. And from the very beginning of the EPC, RTS chancellors have been involved in and supporting, uh, supportive of the wonderful work that the Lord is doing in this particular fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ and churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have a long and happy connection. You may be interested to know that two of our RTS campuses are hosted by EPC churches. RTS Houston and RTS Memphis are hosted by Second Presbyterian Church Memphis and Christ Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Houston. Four of my seven permanent uh, program locations are led by uh, men who are serving in EPC churches. Dr. Don Sweeting, uh, who is the president of RTS Orlando. Dr. Scott Redd, who is the president of RTS Washington are both EPC teaching elders and they are commissioners to this uh, general assembly as is Dr. Glodo and uh, Dr. Allen. Uh, But Guy Richardson, my president in Jackson is the interim pastor at Grace Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Madison, Mississippi. And Tim McCown, my executive director in Houston, is in the choir at Christ Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Houston, Texas. So we have a very, very pervasive and long and happy connection with EPC. If you will, we are the EPC Seminary. And so we're delighted uh, to be a part of what's happening in this wonderful denomination. So Mike Allen is here. representing uh, all good systematic theologians. And uh, (laughs) next to him is Dr. Scott Redd, who is not only the president of RTS Washington, DC, he is a professor of Old Testament. And uh, so he'll be speaking to the issue that we're talking about today from the standpoint of a biblical studies scholar and an Old Testament theologian. Next to him is Mike Flodo, who is also a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary here in Orlando, teaching in Biblical Studies and in Pastoral Theology. And he is the former stated clerk of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. And so we're delighted to have him uh, here with us. And he really helped put this panel together. So thank you, Mike, for the work you've done to bring this panel together. And and next to him, Dr. Don Sweeting, who is a chaired professor of church history at RTS Orlando in addition to being the president of Reformed Theological Seminary Orlando and was the pastor of the Cherry Creek EPC Church in Colorado before he came to RTS Orlando. So you have a distinguished panel of some of RTS's EPC teaching elders to serve you today. And our conversation is going to be about being reformed and missional. And I wanna turn to Dr. Sweeting first, if I could. Uh, as a church historian, as we think about what it means to be reformed and missional, can you speak to the issue of how the reform faith fared in the history of the church in terms of being missional?
3: Mm. Well, you know, when we hear reformed and missional or mission, which is at the heart of missional, a lot of people have the caricature, I think, I did too at one time, that there's an inherent contradiction between reformed missions, evangelism, missionality. Um, but the closer you look at the history of uh, reformed leaders from Calvin on, the more that uh, caricature, I found, is, is um, blown, blown apart. Um, it's very interesting, some recent yeah. studies uh, and Martin Bootser who was a reformed leader in Strasbourg, and his book concerning the true care of souls was just translated and it was the pastor manual, really the early pastor manual before even Richard Baxter's and he's talking about um, how, how you reach the lost and making sure every person in the world hears the, the gospel and it's taken to all the, all the nations which kind of surprised people when when they actually saw that, and then of course recent Calvin scholarship, um, especially uh, Peter Wilcox's work uh, at Oxford, uh, shows how uh, Calvin and Geneva, um, Geneva was full of refugees, and and the Calvinist movement was really an international movement where the refugees came, they sought um, you know safe haven, and they were trained, and then they they went out to all these countries, mainly in in Europe, but the recent studies show how there was this church planting massive effort, a lot of it underground, but at the end of Calvin's ministry, something like 2,000 churches had been pr- planted in France, uh, and then some efforts were actually made to bring uh, the gospel, where Calvin was supporting the effort to bring it to the new world, which we know as as Brazil. So the evidence from, from Calvin himself has, let, let alone, you know, the world is the theater of the glory of God, just the big picture uh, a view of things that he gives uh, to us as a, as a great gift. And then, of course, after uh, that, um, John Elliott, David Brainerd, uh, Jonathan Edwards, William Carey, um, arguing forcefully that um, this mission is for the whole church, it wasn't just for a few. Uh, so, in the heart of the Reformed tradition, there's been a great advocacy of missions and, I think, missionality, they had a hostile Uh, environment in in Europe. They had an integrated world view, and they believed that God's mission in Jesus Christ on the cross was at the very center of it all.
1: Uh, If I could just add an amen to that. Uh, Mike Bloto and I both studied under a man named uh, Dr. David Calhoun, who did his PhD at Princeton under Ed Dowie and worked on Bullinger and Calvin and missions, and he found exactly what you just Mm. described in his Ph.D. work. And Elias Medeiros, who's one of the uh, RTS faculty members that contributed to this book, Reformed Means Missional, did his doctoral work on Calvin and missions, and his father-in-law did his work on Calvin's missions to Brazil. Mm. Uh, Mm, And uh, so all of those things that you've just said have been confirmed in uh, research that has recently been done on this very question. In fact, the modern missions movement was undergirded by Reformed theology. And uh, there, there's just every evidence for that. So the
3: old line that evangelical Calvinism is an oxymoron, I mean that just doesn't hold. Uh, Stephen Neal's comments in his History of Missions, he just didn't have the research.
1: Wow. And, and, and evangelicalism is at its most robust when reformed theology is the beating heart, uh, not only informing the theology of the movement, but informing the mission of mm-hmm. the movement. Um, Don Fortson would be joining in on this historical part of our <coughs> conversation if he were here. Don Fortson is an EPC teaching elder who is a professor of church history at RTS in Charlotte. He's also the historian of the EPC. He's writing the history of the EPC, but his father is dying and he left to go home to be with his father as his father prepares to depart this world and to enter into the presence of Jesus and to comfort his mother in that time, or he would be joining in on this conversation as well. So I want to skip, if I could, to Scott Redd, who's right down here. And uh, Scott, of course, is going to speak as an Old Testament scholar and a biblical scholar to this particular issue, but also as one who's lived in the Arab world. Uh, Scott, uh, you you've not only lived there you you continue to have an active ongoing interest and involvement in equipping people for ministry in the context of that world how how does biblical theology especially from a reform perspective speak to being missional in that context are there things that are particularly relevant from a reform perspective that help us in that context
4: yeah, that, that's a great question I you know, I'm also a military kid, and if there's any other military children here, you, you've you experienced this, too, about every... What I, what I tell people is that means when I met you as a child, just as I was getting to know you, I would move away. Mm-hmm. And then I would come back into your life maybe six years later and talk about the three places I had lived in between the time that I saw you now and the last time. And that was kind of a typical military kid experience, and we have, even amongst military kids, a way of talking I think about towns because you, you know what it feels like to go into a city and you try to get okay like what's the culture here? You know, what what are the values? You know, is this a, is this a football school or is this more of a lacrosse school? Or maybe it's a sailing school depending on where you live, you know. So I, lived, I went, to, went to four different high schools and each different one we noticed we had these kind of we had like this matrix of favorite sport, what made you popular and what drugs were the bad kids doing. Mm. And it was always different no matter where you went. You know, and so it was you kind of got this cross-cultural communicative exegetical thing early on but it really wasn't until uh, I lived in Bahrain, a town called uh, Manama on a very small island in the Persian Gulf where I had that experience that missionaries have and State Department officials and other folks who live overseas where you'll be in a conversation and you'll start to hear the American accent. And you'll realize that this way of talking that you always thought was an unmarked way of talking was kind of the basic way of talking is actually an, uh, just another way of talking, yeah. you know? That, that there's no culture that's, that is unmarked in this world. There's no kind of culture that, that, that's basic and all other cultures are derivative from it. And I think that's kind of a basic notion of missionalism. That was something that Newbegin, of course, emphasized a lot, this idea after coming back from the mission field, mm-hmm. that we need to be doing cross-cultural work in our societies. And I think in America, as, as, as Ligon mentioned earlier, we were able to get by on this idea of being an unmarked being unmarked in the culture and now we're realizing no this is a cross cultural work of proclaiming the gospel and so when i think about that you know one of the missional basic notions of missions is translation and i think the translation gets at a basic i don't just mean linguistic translation but i think just translation as a whole gets at a basic reformed principle and that's the perspicuity of scripture yeah, you know, uh, Luther is, you know, what is perspicuity, yeah. hmm. perspicuity <laughs> right. is a great word that means clarity, and it's great because it doesn't, it's not clear at all, yeah. so you took my joke away, but also thanks for the setup, no, but perspicuity uh, means the clarity of scripture, it's this basic idea that when properly presented, scripture is understandable unto a way of salvation, okay, now, it does go without saying, though. in other words, this is moving away from a more high, um, uh, high scholastic or, or, or Roman Catholic notion of scripture that says if you don't have the doctors of the church explaining it to you, then you shouldn't be reading scripture on your own. And it's a movement away from that. And, and he, uh, Luther in his diaries has these great sections where he talks about what it's like to translate the Hebrew into German and how he's losing the beautiful imagery. And he, he moans about it. I mean, he, he in his, in his uh, diaries, I, that, he's, that he's taking this beautiful Hebrew language and putting it in this rot-gut German lingua franca, but he knows that he's gotta do it because scripture needs to be translated. It needs to be read by the farmer. It needs to be read by the peasant woman. And we are about that work, too, of translation. I think that's a basic reformed idea, the clarity of scripture, And it's something that we need to be mindful of And and, and what I would even argue Is that for the pastor Because of this strong commitment To the clarity of scripture Really the first cross-cultural work we do Is exegesis It's sitting down with an ancient text And knowing the language And knowing the history And knowing the (coughs) canonical realities of the text And translating that up To our day Being able to do that work of translation That goes beyond just relying on your ESV, which is great, but actually being able to understand the times and the context in which it's written so that we can apply it into, as John Frame, uh, one of uh, my colleagues at RTS Orlando says, apply it into different situations in life. And so I think that idea of translation in the missional movement is is huge, and it gets right at the reform doctrine of perspicuity and clarity. And the only thing I would add to that is just also presence. I mean I think we do We tend to do proclamation well Uh, We tend to proclaim the truth And kind of shake our heads When people don't listen Um, But I think there is If you take this this, this notion that, That everyday people Should be presented with the truth Of scripture and the gospels That means that we need to be present In those places where it's happening so we don't just let our light shine from a faraway mountain, cupping it against the wind, you know, shouting our proclamations, but we go in and we're present. That's a, deep, that's a, that's a key notion of missionality as well, that you're present where the darkness is advancing, that you're, you're present in the room when the decisions are being made that are going to affect people, sometimes unto life and sometimes unto death. Uh, you know, James Davison Hunter has a great book, How to, you know, to Change the World, and he talks about faithful presence and practicing that. And I think that's something that maybe as evangelicals in America we have not done so well. We've, we've preferred to set up subcultures and I think that we're bearing the fruit of that a little bit. And we're going to be pressed now in this time of however you want to call it, disenfranchisement, maybe cultural exile, which by the way Peter says the whole church is in exile so just go ahead and get used to it, okay, but actually being present, <clears throat> being around not just proclaiming the truth from afar, but proclaiming it from a place of proximity.
1: Michael Allen, um, very often people will accuse reform theology of being um, scholastic and abstract and uh, uh, not sort of being able to put the cookies on the the lower shelf so that uh, people can get to them. But you would disagree with that and you actually think that reformed theology, reformed thinking about the doctrine of the church uh, is particularly suited and helpful in engaging our culture faithfully. Could you talk a little bit about how?
5: Sure. Uh, one of the things that we could mention about the missional challenge with changing context now uh, as it's been happening and as it's symbolized even by the events of today is uh, that it's not simply that there's a culture out there and then there's us in here but that we have been influenced by that culture out there and reformed theology gives us the language of the visible and the invisible church uh, and of, of the idea that it's not simply there's some posers who are in the church who will be ferreted out by God on judgment day but even those of us who are in Christ and will be saved we have also grown up and been shaped in various ways by an idolatrous land. We're sojourners. We may be in Egypt, we may be in Canaan, Neither's a particularly good spot in this phase of time. Um, There are challenges. And so that's why the Reformed tradition has emphasized in its evangelism, it starts in what we'd call sort of the most close and intimate quarters with the family, right? Evangelizing, one another, um, through family worship, through catechism, through training. Um, And while we might want to do it slightly different in different settings because of schedules, realities, technology, etc., I I think that's a resource uh, that springs right out of this reform principle that we realize we have not yet arrived and our indwelling sins make us prone to fall and to fail in various ways, and so we need to build one another up as part of our mission. We need to reach out to those within the church, not simply presuming that they understand biblical teaching and Christian orthodoxy, uh, much less the kind of practice and ethical behavior that God wants from them. Um, I mean, we get seminarians who don't know those things coming in, who are surprised by certain elements of what you might consider basic Christianity Uh, and you you talk to your college ministers that's that's the reality and we need to have our eyes open not just to the fact that there's opposition out there but that there's a great challenge within as well and if we're going to sustain our witness and if we're gonna reach out with strength we've got to first strengthen um, our own families congregations presbyteries, relationships with uh, other churches and networks that we might partner with and encourage and learn from and so forth. And then denominations and cities and cultures. So flowing out of just really pivotal basic reform teaching like the visible and invisible church distinction, you get all these priorities, all these emphases that have marked reformed pastoral practice and the way elders and parents have shepherded congregations and families mm-hmm. and I think that you know that, that's a pill we need today mm-hmm.
1: um. Mike Glodo, you have taught Old Testament New Testament preaching pastoral theology you've been the stated clerk of the PCA of the EPC so so from, from the standpoint of the integration of those different responsibilities and disciplines can you speak to what the pluses and minuses what the opportunities and, and maybe obstacles or perils of Reformed theology might be as, as we seek to impact the church mission?
0: Uh, I'll do two, two EPC anecdotes. Um, one was uh, at the M- EPC General Assembly in Kempsville, and I think it was 2005. Craig Strickland preached a sermon calling the church to mission. And he said, look, we put it in our name. That's the E. <laughs> you know? And It was a great moment. Um, and then uh, another moment, and Mike Friesen will, might remember this one, um, a, a local church was uh, trying to address some, some, some people's uh, dissatisfaction, and, and one pastor said, look, it's on the sign. It says Presbyterian. <laughs> um, and so why we put both of those in our name, uh, whether we knew what we were doing, but God knew, um, and you hear people from both sides of the continuum saying i a lot of days i wish i was in the epc mm-hmm. because you seem to be at least trying to get these these two escaped convicts who are chained together this is a metaphor from a movie uh, <laughs> trying to get them to get along and in my experience the 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 church is as church is at its least best when it makes false choices and so that's kind of been my credo leg that Whenever I see evangelical and reformed or missional and reformed somehow in t- at odds with one another, I just need to grab hold of both stronger. And, um, and so the EPC is pretty uniquely situated as having stated a value of a commitment to the, re- the, the Westminster Standards. We are not a minimalist doctrinal denomination, uh, we don't just have to believe the list of essentials, but we have to receive and adopt the system of doctrine contained in the Westminster Standards. And yet we have declared for the past 10 years consistently that we want to be a church in mission. This has affected how we approach polity, and this went back to my days as stated clerk and continued. <laughs> polity, or governance, is to be in service of mission. <coughs> but, and when mission doesn't care about governance, it usually ends up off the rails. And so, seeing governance and mission working together as partners in the church's mission. Uh, now, as far as uh, biblical theology, if I can kind of connect it to there, and I think this is the uh, this is the romance part of it, and this is what the Reformed tradition has distinctively contributed to the current scene, especially when I began training uh, in seminary, I started to understand some of my influences. There was a view of the Bible that says it's a bunch of different plans of God and they all don't have much to do with each other except it's God in all of them and then I began to understand there's this way of reading the Bible that sees the Bible as one story Uh, creation, fall, redemption and ultimately consummation and um, this is this was really what inflamed my heart as I began to discover missional thinking because of what we call the Pauline eschatology in the New Testament. That Paul says the kingdom of God is coming but it already has come. Jesus taught the same thing. And you look at the book of Ephesians and you see, and this is how I like to plan. If I want to go somewhere, I think, where do I want to go? And then I plan backwards. The end of history is a new creation without a church building because the consummated church, the perfected church and confirmed righteousness is the dwelling of God and God God Himself is the dwelling. And so to understand that the church is the beginning of that because Mary was the first witness of the new heavens and earth when she said Rabboni at the open tomb. The new heavens and earth will, that will appear from heaven one day was right there that moment, and we are participating in that in that unfolding and progressing plan. And so we look at the whole Bible, and the and the world is start the Christian world is starting to figure out that we've read the Bible better by seeing it as one plan of God, one story, and moving in that grand arc uh, toward toward. Uh, not just every soul being saved, but a church. I mean, that's how Paul's prayer ends in Ephesians 3. God's going to get glory in two ways that are actually one way. In the church and where else? In Christ Jesus. And it's by our, our mystical union with Him, that He and us and we in Him, it's one thing. And, and how it relates to mission, you just have to look at John 4, right? The temple would be rebuilt one day and there would be water flow out of it that would never cease. And when the woman at the well spoke to the thirsty Messiah, he said he would give her water that would never cease. Because it wasn't going to be on Mount Gerizim, it wouldn't be in Jerusalem, that worship would happen. But the way Edmund Clowney put it, the one sitting on the well, the curb of the well in Sychar was where the new temple would be. And so, to me, that it, I mean, all the structures that my colleagues are are, are laying out are ones I love to depend on and draw from. But it's the romance too. I think um, Montgomery one time said to Churchill that he hated logistics, because Churchill said, "If you don't learn logistics, you'll never be a great great field, uh, field uh, a general." And and he said, I, uh, "Familiarity breeds contempt." <laughs> and Churchill said. No familiarity breeds nothing, <laughs> meaning that um, the, 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 we have to see the romance of the mission, which is the bride adorned coming out uh, to meet her husband, and we are that bride, but we are also the ones participating in her perfection.
4: Can I just jump off of that yep, real quickly? I get the honor to work with a group of pastors who are converts from Islam. They live in North Africa and the Middle East, primarily. Converts from Islam into Christianity, like Paul and great converts of the past, they, they rose to positions of authority pretty quickly, and we, we, we take them out of their churches for a period, short period of time and give them kind of a high-speed training because they can't get the training elsewhere. Um, all of them, I mean... Actually, I should not say, early on, I've been doing this prep for about 10 years. For the first nine years, all of them would report a dream for the reason why they became a Christian. And I I tell my students that that's a sociological fact. You can do do your theological calculations. But it's a sociological fact. But as of last year, we had our first student come in who had been converted by the witness of one of our earlier students. So we actually start to see a normalization, I would argue, actually a normalization of the church in that region. Um, but, anyways, they come in, and, and a lot of them because they were converted, they went online. They Google search Christianity in Arabic, and if you could do that, you'll see what comes up. It's not the best stuff, so that's that's where they got their early training. And so when they come in, we really treat them like they're blank slates. And, and I start with uh, the story that you're talking about. We start with the Bible. We, say, we posit the Bible, and they all, we they agree on this. And we posit the Old and New Testament. And then we posit creation, fall, redemption, consummation. And at this time now they're starting to hear new material you know and then we posit covenantal theology and it's usually about the time I'm going through Matthew showing how Christ is the fulfillment of the old testament promises that had been established in the covenants previously it's like a light turns on and this is i mean this is total cross cultural work they they have no exposure to western rationalism really that movement or to reformed theology but right about that time a light goes on Hands go up and people say, this makes a lot of sense. And you go, yeah, yeah, it really does. It makes a lot of great sense. Uh, I think that there's a power to that story. There's a lot of buzz about story, but I think there's a power to that redemptive historical narrative that does speak cross-culturally in a way sometimes leading with propositions can't. And once, you buy, once they understand that and they see that unified message, then you can go back and you can start building out the structure. Okay.
0: Can I can I ask get either either Ulig or, or Don Sweeting speak to it, uh, it uh, because you, I think you speak to it better than I. Uh, how the reformed view of vocation has so much more to offer people it, that are not in vocational
1: ministry. Well, if, if I could if I could take it all the way back to Genesis twelve, when uh, and this relates to Scott's comment about covenant theology, because from a reform perspective. Uh, our call to mission doesn't stem simply from Matthew 28, 18 to 20. It's something that goes all the way back to Genesis 3:15, ultimately, and but is especially articulated in the Abrahamic covenant. And you see two aspects. If you look at Genesis 12, 1 to 3, when God calls Abraham, notice what he does. He calls him away from his father's house, his people, and his land, to follow him to the land which God will show him. And so he calls him to pilgrimage. He calls him to be a follower of the one true God in the midst of a dominantly polytheistic culture and to um, extract himself from that dominant polytheistic culture represented in his father's house, his native people, and his native land. But he also tells him what? That he is to be a blessing to the nations And it's actually that that is the ground of a Protestant doctrine of vocation, that we are part of a grand conspiracy to bless the nations in every aspect of what we do. Uh, So when, when we oppose things that our culture thinks are a good idea, which God says in his word are a bad idea, we don't do it because we hate people, We do it because we love people, and we want them to flourish, and we want to bless them. So we are part of a gigantic uh, conspiracy to bless the entire world in every aspect of our life, not just when we're gathered at church on Sunday morning, but in every calling to which we are called, whether we are shoemakers or ditch diggers or telephone pole repairmen, uh, or lawyers or doctors or nurses or whatever else we do. We, are, we, we want to follow the one true God and we want to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And that goes all the way back to the calling of Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees in Genesis 12one to 3 And Derek Kidner makes a, a very interesting observation. He says when Jesus calls the disciples, and there's that, the language of vocation is just the language of calling. It comes from a a Latin word, vocatio. And when Jesus calls the disciples, notice what he says to them. Leave your family, leave your father and mother, leave your nets, and come follow me. And Derek Kidner says what Jesus is doing is he's saying, I'm the same God who called Abram to leave his family and leave his dwellings and come follow me. And that's the call of Jesus to every Christian. So all of us have that calling uh, in every aspect of our life, not just pastors, not just elders, but every Christian has that calling. Don, do you wanna elaborate yeah, I, on that? That's one
3: of the things that attracted me to the reform movement, because I came out of a more fundamentalist uh, pietist background with this whole life vision. And this is one of the great resources that the reformed faith has in missions and missionality. Uh, all of life matters. All of life under the Lordship of Christ. Uh, the world is a theater for the glory of God. Uh, uh, what is the deep end of man? Uh, and Kuiper fits into that as as well. And I, I don't know if we're aware of all the resources that our Reformed heritage brings to us in this. I mean, there, there's the view of vocation, the view of all life uh, lived under the Lordship of God and, and uh, all creation groaning till there's a new heaven and earth, but there's also the fact that um, reform theology brings a God-centeredness to the missionality mm-hmm. movement, which is really important because if a group takes one aspect of those three that you talked about, and and some do, you know they just mm-hmm. missionality is adapting the church to a postmodern context. And by the way, every denomination in the United States is using the word missional, missional, yep. and missionality, yep. and a lot of them mean very different things, but. But reformed missionality means that um, what's going to define our, our, be the center of our mission is is God himself and God's glory as opposed to anthropology and man. Because when you make that shift, all of a sudden missionality will will start to go crazy. And the the best example of this is uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher himself, who uh, had a reformed pastor as a father but uh, he wrote this book called uh, S- Religion Speeches to the Cultured Despisers. The people that look down on Christianity as being too simplistic. And he wanted to make Christianity acceptable to his strange generation. And when he did, he redefined it all and became of course the father of modern liberalism. So that, that drift and accommodation can take place if you don't have a God-centered focus to missionality or if you don't have a Christ-centered focus that gets to the cross and discipleship, or if you don't have a Bible-based missionality, otherwise people will pick and choose what they want. So so reformed missionality has a lot of strength.
1: We only have a few more minutes, and I wanna give you a chance to ask the questions that you have. So if you have a question, if you'll just raise your hand or stand up and ask it, I'll repeat it and you can direct it to the entire panel or to one particular member of the panel if you prefer. Yes, sir. Uh, sometimes people lay a charge against the standards that it doesn't explicitly talk about missions, and I know there's a history behind Chapter 35. And can you kind of color in some of that? Here's a question that is often raised. There was no chapter on missions in the original Westminster Confession of Faith or in the edition that was adopted first in what is now the United States of America. Uh, and so does that mean that reform? theology as it was expressed by the Westminster Assembly of Divines in the 1640s didn't care about missions. Now of course there was an additional chapter that was added in the early 20th century in a number of different American Presbyterian uh, contexts that spoke to the issue of the love of God and of missions as well as a collective chapter on the Holy Spirit. Any of you want to speak to that Uh, historically Don or Mike? I know
5: that both of you have thought about that Mike Allen? Yeah, uh, you know, Lig just mentioned Genesis 12 and covenant theology and how mission is woven into that, as did Mike Glodo, and so if you look at Westminster you'll see for instance on the chapter of God's covenant with man uh, that you have exactly this movement of one story various administrations of the one covenant of grace uh, and you'll have in that description of how its progress, its expansion is marked by certain activities, certain realities of the church. Those will be played out later when you get to uh, the chapter on the church and her worship in particular, where it talks about uh, the way in, the, in which the, the church serves a role. You know, one, one term that Westminster assumes and takes up and endorses is that the church is apostolic. You know, the Pentecostals don't own that. That's mm-hmm. the Roman Catholics, mm-hmm. it's, it's, in the, it's in the Creed. Westminster affirms it, the church is apostolic, and that refers both to the fact that we share the same faith as the apostles and before them, the one who sent them and us, but also that we're a part of the sending. Mm. And so right there in one of those four notes, as we call them in the Nicene Creed and reaffirmed in Westminster, is this idea that the church is, it's going outward. It's, it's it's sent, and the way in which that's parceled out practically will be uh, primarily through worship, where people are reached, through uh, family care, through neighbor care and relations, uh, and so forth, outward from there. Um, and so, particularly in the covenant and in the church chapters, it's, it's gonna get very much at those ideas.
2: Yes. Um, I was in a conversation with a very dear friend, uh, is very well-versed in Calvinism and uh, scarily, so we've had some wonderful conversations and also very influential in the local church. Uh, very respectful of Calvin, not a fan at all. <laughs> Huge honor. And I was, I was expressing, and the commitment was, I need to tell you what Reformed theology is and that I have a sound basis for this so that you don't hate me. Uh, You can disagree with me, but just understand I didn't make this stuff up, but it has scriptural basis. And I was coming in with an argument of, and I had Michael Horton on the brain, Amazing Grace. There's no hook left to hang the hat of pride on, and I was all prepared to talk about how election really made me humble. I hadn't gotten that far, and she said to me, after I talked about election, she says, that's the most arrogant thing I've ever heard. And I, it totally left me floored. I, I was speechless. I had no idea how to respond. I see it as the basis of humility. Shia committed Armenian saw it as the basis of pride. Can you talk about that? How has it manifested itself as pride? How can we avoid it coming across as pride, particularly in a postmodern, post Christian culture? That is
1: a great question. Let me repeat it for the sake of the recording. Uh, When we use the Reformed uh, uh, language of election and predestination, very often our friends who are Arminian see that doctrine as prideful or pride-inducing, whereas those of us who are Reformed believe that it's humbling, it's self-abasing, and it's Christ-exalting, and it's grace-exalting. How in the world do you talk about that to, uh, to Arminian friends and others who are maybe atheological, wouldn't even know how to label themselves, but they're scared to death about that idea of election. Let me say just two things. One is very often young Calvinists are prideful in the way they not only talk about that doctrine, but every other doctrine. And I think that's why it's so vital that we talk about character and not simply about the formulation of truth. Uh, because our manner of character will show through in the way that we talk about these things. People can tell whether you love them or not. And if you don't really, they will be able to know that. And people that you love, you don't speak arrogantly and condescendingly to. You're trying, the people that you love, you're trying to figure out how can I say this to them in such a way that honors them and persuades them, and shows them my love and my esteem, you're not speaking to them in ways that are dishonoring and condescending. So one, one fact of the matter is, Reformed theology, simply because of our focus on proper formulation of truth, can appear to be intimidating and condescending and arrogant to people that are maybe not so steeped in the in the terminology that we use, in the the writings that we appeal to, et cetera. And we just need to be very, very aware of that. Number two is, and let me just speak from personal uh, experience. My my grandmother was a, a faithful Southern Baptist from Titusville, Florida and uh, my mother threatened me within an inch of my life that i should never get into a discussion about election with my grandmother and one one christmas we were all at their house and the family uh, reading that morning was in ephesians 1. and of course the term election crops up twice and predestination crops up twice and and my mother was standing behind my grandmother, and I was sitting over here, and as the, as my grandfather was reading the section, my mother was standing, she was, shit, she was looking right at, at me, like, son, you better not open your mouth. And after the reading was over, my grandmother said, now, son, we're Southern Baptists, and we don't believe in election. <laughs> And my mother was still standing behind her looking right at me, shaking my head, you better not open it. And I said, well, Grandmother, you, you believe in election, it's just that you think it means something different than I do. And she said, son, you don't understand. We're Southern Baptists, we don't believe in election. <laughs> and I said, well, Grandmother, I mean, the words there in Ephesians 1, I mean, John Calvin didn't sneak it into the passage, all. <laughs> wrote it. It's just you believe that God foresaw that you would choose him, and he chose you on the basis of your foreseen faith. And I believe that he in love chose me from the foundation of the world. But we both believe in election, we just define it differently. And she said, son, you don't understand. <laughs> <me. I'm laughs> Southern Baptists and we don't believe in election. And, it, and that was a really good thing for, for it to happen. First of all, it's really good that my mother didn't kill me that day. <laughs> yeah. But it was also good because it, it showed me my grandmother had two, con- and by the way, she's a far more godly person than I'll ever be. And she'll be so close to Jesus in heaven, I probably won't see her there. But she she had two control beliefs: the Bible was true, and election was not. And therefore, you could not you could have shown her 35 <laughs> passages in the Bible that used the word election, and it would not have phased her. And I, I that's a really good lesson to learn. People have presuppositions that are very very difficult to penetrate, and. Um, and that's important in having these kinds of conversations. Brothers, we're almost out of time, but do you have anything that you would add? Let me, uh, yeah, Mike?
0: Uh, if you want to try anything else, hand her a copy of a little excerpt from the Institute's called Calvin's Booklet of the Golden Christian Life. Mm-hmm. And ask if there's anything in there that she takes exception to. Heart of flame, you are not your own, you're the Lord. You've been bought with a price. It's what it's all about. Prayer. And prayer yeah. and how to under, and then, um, um, understand that, as chapter three says, this doctrine is a very um, it's to be handled with great care it 's not something to lead with uh, and furthermore the, the decrees of God are hidden deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine says the hidden things belong to the Lord, but these things he has revealed to you and your children and so uh the misuse of election is in explaining the gospel to yeah. somebody yeah. the right use of election is to say Christ you will never let me from Amen. out of your hand Amen. and um, so often as, as Lig has alluded to often the people at what we call the cage stage yeah. um, the, the, the cage stage,
1: stage, stage Calvinists, you know <laughs> when you
0: first become reformed you need to be put in a cage for a while <laughs>
1: We're at 115, and you need to be ready to go back and do your commissioner's duties. Thank you so much for being with us today. We pray Sorry. the Lord's blessings on you all.